I think especially in the last few years where in an era of fake news, you know, you have people just wanting the facts. They just want information. And with social upheavals that have happened in the last few years, people are wondering, and by people I mean everyday people, businesses, educators, what do I need to do? You know, how can I contribute to this? How how can I do better? Um, how can I be part of the solution? What history am I missing? Um, what social context with the issues that we're seeing today in the news? What do I need to know? Um, they want a vetted professional, someone who is knowledgeable about this, is, who has taken time to study and research all of this, or at least is connected to people who are experts. They want the facts and the information. The C-Suite is a podcast about sharing entrepreneurship stories and illuminating financial concepts in a way that speaks to who we are as creatives, as small business owners, as entrepreneurs and aspiring entrepreneurs, not as finance executives. Each episode features one finance term that is explained through career stories in conversation with friends. So join me as we dive into the highly personal stories that bring finance to life. Because you can do this. You can learn to understand it intuitively. And when we do that and put new ideas into context, that's when we can learn, plan, and thrive. Welcome to the C-Suite with Catherine. Hi from New York City. Thank you so much for joining me today in the C-Suite. The C-Suite with Catherine is a podcast about entrepreneurship and small business finance through the lens of career stories. Today's featured finance term is financial operating model, and I'm thrilled beyond thrilled to welcome Kimberly Jenkins, educator, researcher, and founder of the Fashion and Race Database to the C-Suite today. In addition to the Fashion and Race Database, Kim is also the founder of Artiste Solomon, an education consultancy that provides academic and creative solutions towards a more intelligent fashion system. Kim was also recently named to the Vogue Business 100 Innovators for her work amongst the top sustainability thought leaders changing the world of fashion. Kim, welcome. Thank you so much. It's such an honor to be reunited and united with you. I, I admire you from afar. I've admired you for years, just kind of stalking you on Instagram. This is and a then... mutual love affair, I promise <laughs> you. I have admired you as well tre- tremendously throughout the years. Thank you. It's an honor. And and to, I guess I, I just want to add, it's also an honor because I followed you in your trajectory from a field that we shared of fashion studies and then you going into business management. And I always just admired, but wasn't really sure if I could ever pull it off, um, creative entrepreneurship. And so it's just such a great kind of arc to now be in the space with you as I took the leap to start my own business and to be in conversation. So for you to be the first person to really facilitate this conversation with me, and this is kind of really my first podcast where I get to be business Kim now. So well, I'm who thr- better to... <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I'm thrilled so. to know business Kim and fashion studies Kim. Yes, we have that in common, the fashion studies program at Parsons. And I think what what sort of inspired me to go in that direction was just this reverence and respect for the fashion industry overall. Mm. And the idea that, you know, there's so much craftsmanship and history and everything. Yeah. And I wanted to to know more about that in a concrete way. And, you know, the, the research that you do now and have always done has shaped the structure of the way 
so many of us think about clothes and why we wear them. <laughs> Where to begin? <laughs> Where to begin? There's a lot. There's a There's lot. layers to me there. Well, I'll start by saying so the C-Suite is a podcast about sharing entrepreneurship stories and illuminating financial concepts in a way that speaks to who we are as creatives. Exactly that. And not as finance people, not as finance executives at all. So today's podcast term is financial operating model, which we'll define very soon. And back to what we were just saying, I think your, your Instagram bio really nails it. It says, I teach lessons on why we wear what we wear. And you go on to explain that as a fashion educator, your classes and creative projects and consulting work to emphasize one key thing, that we must know our history mm -hmm. to understand the present and determine the future. And there's something so true about that too for, for business. Your work in teaching and sharing fashion history helps us all become more knowledgeable about what we wear and, and also uncovers the very often underappreciated stories behind why we wear what we wear. Yeah. We know there are so many currents that influence that. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought I'd kick this off with just telling you, I mean, you were so sweet with what you just said, but telling you how I felt when I got the notification that you became a student, I literally like squealed. And there is no one that embodies the inspiration behind my business more than you. It's the idea that someone, yes, who is in the fashion industry is interested in getting into small business ownership, but who's also an academic creating a knowledge product and mm -hmm. joining this program, which is all about understanding the financials in your business. And when I saw you come through, I was like, yes, because <laughs> knowledge products and digital, whether it's learning or things that are not, you know, I talk a lot about there are inventory-based businesses yeah. and service-based businesses. Yeah. What you're doing is somewhere in between both yeah. of those things. It's a service in that you're providing knowledge, but it's inventory-based in a way in that you are selling subscriptions to a platform to access information, mm -hmm. uh, but it's not exactly in either bucket. Nope. And so I was like, great. This is is <laughs> are you up for the challenge? Because I'm in this gray area that even I, which we'll talk about today, am trying to navigate of what do you do when you're not quite, you know, a fashion product like clothing or accessories? And but, you know, there's also consultancies. I mean, there's like McKinsey. You know, there's these other spaces that I was navigating and people who are knowledge, who work in knowledge and uh, trend forecasting and insight. And, you know, I'm not that big either. So what am I? What, what how do I navigate this thing that I'm trying to pitch of? fashion education, and I'm not a school. So, you know, how do we convince people and build a finance model around this kind of new-ish new idea, at least when it comes to my niche? Absolutely. And it's also, yeah. it's new for you too, right? Like it's a new business for you. It's a whole state of being and you're at the center of it. And we're not really ever taught or trained about how to be an entrepreneur yeah. and how to even exist in that space. And also, you know, as women, and you're a woman of color, mm -hmm. we are not set up to understand outside of ourselves yeah. in terms of, you know, I you, I heard you just say like, I'm not as big. I'm just, yeah, I'm just I'm this. Just. I'm just, right? And I'm here to say you are so yeah. much bigger, which is like the squeal that came out of me was yeah. very big yeah. when I saw you come through, but it's new. And what I think is so important about finance for small business is that it's not that hard. Mm, it yeah. is and can be broadly applicable to any type of business. And so let's 
quickly touch on the definition of this term, and then we're going to get into into your whole experience. (laughs) So today we're talking about financial operating models. And financial modeling Mm -hmm. is the process of creating like a summary of a company's expenses and earnings in the form of a spreadsheet that can be used to calculate the impact of earnings of, sorry, that can be used to calculate the impact of a future event or decision. So I teach small business owners how to take their own financial information and weave it into a three-part financial operating model that helps them visualize their data to ultimately understand the potential of a company or an opportunity. So a financial operating model is a spreadsheet in Excel that orbits around your strategy. And strategy or potential strategies are defined as the pursuit of superior and sustained profits. So strategy is the pursuit of superior and sustained profits. And it's like louder for the people in the back. It is okay to talk about profits. It's okay to talk about the idea of sustaining them over time. And it's okay to talk about doing them in a way that is both sustainable for you as the business owner and for the people you serve and, and the planet as well. So you know your strategy or your potential strategies, and an operating model is used to construct the expenses necessary to make that strategy come to life, the sales goals you have based on realistic expectations of that strategy, and then we use the key numbers that matter in your business, those are called your assumptions, Mm -hmm. to power the outcome of the model. The outcome paints a picture of your business potential and also answers critical questions around funding, like how much money your business may need to bring a strategy to life. Ours includes a cash flow needs calculator, which is a clear, easy to use tool that answers the all important questions of how much money do I need to really make this happen? So in short, a financial operating model includes one, sales goals, two, a corresponding expense budget, and three, a cash flow forecast that empowers you in advance with clarity around how much money your business may need over a given period of time. And we teach business owners how to do this across three years. So let's talk about the idea of the knowledge economy. Um, You noted to me that it's a sector that is growing along with startups related to social justice or simply helping people make wiser, more informed decisions. What does it mean to you? To me, as we're living in the information age, um, I think especially in the last few years where in an era of fake news, you know, you have people just wanting the facts. They just want information. And with social upheavals that have happened in the last few years, people are wondering, and by people I mean everyday people, businesses, educators, what do I need to do? You know, how can I contribute to this? How how can I do better? Um, How can I be part of the solution? What history am I missing? Um, What social context with the issues that we're seeing today in the news? What do I need to know? Um, They want a vetted professional, someone who is knowledgeable about this, who has taken time to study and research all of this, or at least is connected to people who are experts. They want the facts and the information. And so in this space of knowledge work, um, you know, I I do want to say you don't have to be a PhD holding educator to be able to speak to this. There's people who have just lived experience, um, people from grassroots organizations who can do this work. Um, But I think since 2020, we're learning, okay, you know, there needs to be um, sort of a refined model for this. People who are building businesses and consultancies now after they're seeing this need from individuals, businesses, um, when it comes to getting the facts and the right education. So... um, I, like many other people, were realizing, oh, I could 
it, or actually I was urged to, you know, I could create a consultancy. I've, I've touched on something. Um, for me, in my corner of the universe in fashion, it's fashion brands and fashion organizations that need help when it comes to issues related to race and social justice. And um, since I had been a professor for almost 10 years um, at fashion schools, um, I realized, well, you know, there's ways that I can take this information from the classroom, from behind the gates of academia, and translate it and make it practical and applicable um, to everyday business needs, um, even for the public audience who want more context and information. So, so that's where I realized, okay, this can be a business, um, and. Speaking to um, your introduction with my bio, it landed in two kind of two, it split two ways. Um, I have a consultancy called Artist Solomon, which is named after two grandfathers. And it's I, when you go to my website, artistsolomon.com, I spent time studying consultancy websites and, you know, what are their offerings? How do they lay it out when it comes to the website you go to? Um, what are my services? And so any fashion brand that's sort of wringing their hands over um, issues that are happening today politically, historically, um, socially, they can come to my website and find that I offer three services there, which is history research. Um, I offer uh, cultural insight um, for issues that are going on today and also preventative research, like how to not be that company ding, that's ding, dragged ding, through ding. the news, yeah. you know, for a racist misstep or some sort of, um, you know, incident. Um, and then I have a whole robust platform I created called the Fashion and Race Database, which is anything anyone would ever want to know about um, the intersection of fashion and race. And so it is a, it's beyond a library. It has everything, events. Um, we, we collect articles, books, podcast episodes. Um, we have our own news stories that we list where we do a roundup of news happening. We write essays. So, um, so that has been sort of my product the Fashion Race Database, and then um, my service is Artist Solomon Consulting, which has run the gamut, um, which we can talk about more of, you know, from working with modeling agencies, luxury brands, um, consulting on film documentaries for um, history verification and things like that. So it's it's been really exciting, but um, I needed to figure out how can I make this a more formal operation and business. What is it going to take when it comes to expenses and and um, hiring? And so, enter you. <laughs> <laughs> I needed help with, um, I guess I had the good problem. I think everything pivoted actually last year when I reached out to you. Um, I had really kind of, things went into full swing technically in 2020. But it was 2022, I realized the Fashion Race database was free. It was just completely open. And my dad, who I, I would tell my dad how, oh, yeah, professors are using it. Everyone's just using all the resources for, for their classes or, or, you know, just my dad's like, for free? You're just giving this away? Right. Like, you don't have any kind of. And so that is um, when I decided to make it more of a, um, a formal learning platform that was subscription-based. And we had the good problem of universities around the world and museums signing up all over the world. Um, and now the Fashion Race database lives in libraries across the world from all the major universities and museums. And it, it the sales were coming faster than I could handle. And suddenly 
I went from educator Kim to business Kim. I'm still educator Kim, <laughs> but that's when I needed to press the red button and, and call Catherine and just, you know, what am I doing here? How do, how can I um, have, you know, like some sort of forecast? How can I have goals and and understand where the, the money's flowing? Where am I just bleeding cash? You know, where am I just throwing money and expenses that I, I'm not ready for right now? Um, right. So, I mean, yeah. you're really at the forefront of so much in this moment. And I find it's very, very difficult for small business owners to both focus on the content of their business and the financial piece. Because the content, whatever that looks like, is so hard already. And you had the beautiful challenge of demand that you couldn't have possibly anticipated, right? So yeah. then you're like, I imagine, fixing links and sending access yeah. and the whole thing and just trying yeah. to kind of keep keep swimming. Yeah. Um, but you're really at the forefront of building something that is so badly needed. Mm-hmm. Your consultancy, for sure, but also something that you can scale and that you don't actually have to personally deliver yeah. um, every single day mm-hmm. because then the work that you've aggregated around race and fashion can go global and yeah. can really impact people. With And you can just kind of get up and go about your, your life. Yeah. And the impact of it can be exponential. So yeah, of course that might have been a little challenging <laughs> to figure out, you know, what's what's upside, what's right from left and, and all of the above. So what I was going to ask you is like, was there one particular moment when you realized you needed it and needed rather guidance? And it sounds like your dad suggesting, hey, you know, I'm so proud of you and yeah. what you're doing is helping a lot of people, but it's helping people who have already monetized yeah. their help to others in, in one way or another. So yeah. you are providing something that someone is basically reselling. How can yeah. you in, engage in the economic transaction there? So yeah. was there another moment in particular where you realized, not that you necessarily needed the financial help, but that you realized that this was possible from a business perspective? Again, in 2020, when I saw the need for my work um, and that there were heavy hitters in fashion and culture reaching out to me, we're talking top curators, CEOs, and that's when I knew I had touched on something. Um, But in those opportunities, if you're not ready and, you know, you don't have the product there or the solution, they're going to move on. Right. And so— We'll talk about pricing and finance models because this is kind of tying into it. When it comes to the space I was coming out of professionally and the opinions around monetizing things. So, um, and this this could possibly answer a question you have coming Mm -hmm. up. But there's one thing I was wringing my hands about in the year leading up to making the decision to have a subscription model and have and go into that B word business. Mm -hmm. And that is, I was coming from academia and also a space that is highly gendered. And so culturally, oftentimes education can be feminized. It's seen as this, a service. Mm -hmm. Um, It's nurturing. You're dealing with, yes, you're dealing with knowledge. And so it becomes this sort of, how dare you especially when you get into like university academics who just feel like it's very vulgar to start monetizing things. So I was getting into this territory of, you know, how dare you kind of create, you know, make money, <laughs> sustain yourself and and put a price tag on this. How can you put a price tag on this? What is the price tag you put on this? And so um, also from academia, with a lot of work that we did and when I decided to kind of inch my way out of it in some ways, 
there's a lot of service. There's a lot of labor that's done, and you're just supposed to be happy to be there. You're giving it in service to knowledge of the of the field. And so um, my a lot of my work, which was critical, was it considered in service to the field. And the what people started asking of me up to the point where I just finally had to pump the brakes was just asking me to do major things like, can you consult our organization? Can you consult our faculty? Can you give us a lesson plan or, or an annotated bibliography? all for free because this is just in service of knowledge. And I just, it, and also in the year leading up to making that decision, I kind of had to clear the room and become a CEO and just make the decision myself because, you know, there were some people who just thought about the subscription idea. Why would you put up a barrier? Why would you put up a wall? Why would you put a price on this? You're going to alienate people now. You're This is just supposed to be open and free. And, you know, when it comes to sustainability and my own survival and the work that goes into this or the people I hire and enlist to do this work, how in the world am I supposed to compensate them? And so I was also trying in all of this to build a new kind of model for everyone to consider, including people in the academic space of, okay, but what if, what if we, you know, were paid, you know, even symbolically, I was coming up with amounts that I would give research assistants who are working at the database just to show I'm giving, you know, I'm compensating you for the research you've done. Um, and and so coming into 2022, I just had to clear the room, make the decision myself, even though some people were just kind of thinking, I don't think that's a good idea. You know, are you, you know, do you even know how to build a paywall? Do you even know, you know, is it going to work? It worked, you know. Um, a lesson I have to say um, for anyone listening um, or people in leadership or a CEO, sometimes you have to just kind of go with your gut and just do the thing, you know. Um, it, 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 you, it works. And as soon as I did that, um, you know, museums and universities were coming in, and my web developer, who's my right hand, we quickly learned how to set up a platform and a paywall. Um, and um, I... I'm not going to lie, the first six months was tough because I was hurled questions by acquisitions managers and librarians, rightfully so, of universities who are very guarded, putting me through, you know, um, the ringer of, you know, do you have this, you know, or do you mm. use this? And so that was also a very interesting lesson because I was already getting myself through the door, but suddenly there was like a a whole new room full of fiery hoops that I had to jump through. And systemically speaking, as a woman of color, as a black woman, um, it was it was kind of frustrating. I get where they were all coming from, but librarians and acquisition managers at these universities that were saying, do you, you, do you use this user statistics um, tool? Do you use this? And do you use this? All of these expenses that major databases in their libraries that are investor-backed, mm. maybe decades, years old, you know, have a, a, a huge team of people are able to do. So it was this very, so yeah, just having to learn how to do that um, was a challenge. But I've, I've so far I've made it through. Um, we've had to roadmap certain items, but um, the subscription model has worked so far. And that's been kind of our key piece of revenue right now. Um, but I can easily see why there aren't that many minority-owned 
learning resources that live inside of libraries because of all of the hoops you have to jump through. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there— But I love a challenge. There you go. I mean, you've got all the criteria to make an amazing entrepreneur. It's like, first of all, gut, instinct. When you have it, you have to listen to it because that is not—it's not a gift everybody's got. It's not. The ability to jump through your words, fiery hoops, that's it. And they're just going to continue to get higher— smaller yeah. and hotter. <laughs> yes. But you've got it because you know that the value and to, you know service, yes, with a yeah. price tag, yeah. can drive from what you're doing. Um, when you think about, so let's talk a little bit about the economics behind the pricing of the subscriptions because it's, and actually before we go there, you also just said something so important, which is you really understand systemically why it there are no other I imagine, yeah. or very, very few, few. Um, resources owned and managed by people of color in academia, in libraries. I mean, I whenever I tell anyone about you, I simply sort of say she's built the Lexus Nexus of mm. fashion and race. Yeah. So, from my perspective, why anyone ever didn't see it that way within your own academic world is a little bit of a mm. hard thing for me to understand. Mm. I think that was more coming from people's yeah. own experience of well, it was really hard for me. No one paid me. Now I'm here. And how dare you think differently? But you actually really owe it to yourself to think differently and Mm. to to carve your own path. So organically, you saw demand and you had demand from institutions, schools, organizations, and then individuals, I imagine, right? So the, the subscription focus there and I am privy to some of your early financials, so I know this, um, but you structured these subscriptions in tiers. Yeah. How did you think through that? Because you very rightly point out also there are expenses Yeah. and you need to kind of back to this financial operating model. Like you knew what you wanted to build and you were getting feedback from the market sort of saying, well, do you have this component? And maybe you do or don't want to add that component, but it's an allegorical for, do you have this resource in order to execute the strategy of this database? And so thinking about roadmaps and the plan, you got to have expenses to be able to have income. So talk to me a little bit about how you initially thought through the pricing tiers for the subscription. One thing uh, that was informing the decision was salary, um, how um, to compensate my labor, and that's another thing we kind of walk on eggshells talking about and for a CEO to be afraid to say, you know, to pay themselves, you need to pay yourself. Um, paying yourself as part of the expenses, the software that I needed to organize the project of assembling lo- just heaps of content um, and the bookkeeping and accounting systems. I mean, anyone who's in business knows, mm-hmm. knows all these basic expenses. So there's that. But also... Um, I remember being home uh, in Texas and just spending, I'm just, it's almost like my laptop is another arm. It's it's another limb. So I'm just always like, you know, whether I'm at my parents' house or somewhere. I spent an entire evening, I remember I was like sitting in the living with my dad and just thinking, pricing, where on earth do I get pricing? And, um, you know, I'll be completely transparent. I had to think about my top competitors, which there's... um, a couple of um, fashion databases um, that I remember in our library in school. And, um, you know, they're not very transparent about their pricing, so you have to hunt for it. Mm -hmm. And so I managed to find their pricing model. 
I how did, how did you pull that off if you don't mind me asking? Just deep Google research. I love it. I just <laughs> deep dive, you know. And I'm sure the person who is suspecting the database that I'm talking about, they're like, how did you find it? Yeah. You know, <laughs> you weren't supposed to find that. But I found it. And so I I was kind of going through that and thinking, oh my gosh, like, you know, with this tiered pricing, um, the model that I use as an education resource is um, FTE or full-time equivalent. It's this tiered pricing that is the full-time equivalent is um, the number of students. So it's one to 999 students is X amount of dollars. Um, 1,000 to 1,999 students is X amount of dollars. So I came up with like four tiers from one student to 20,000 students, and it has a specific price. And this, and so I designed this cute little price modeling, uh, price graphic that I give to inquiring customers and institutional subscribers, along with a brochure of the work we do and why it's important, why it matters with screenshots of inside the database. Um, and just, it, it's honestly just sort of a trial and error of seeing how they respond. Um, the pricing model that I landed on, um, I thought would suit um the expenses that we have, and it would value the place of value on the work that we do. And I haven't had a lot of pushback, um, but I have had a couple of insulting moments. Um, one acquisitions manager from a university, a man who was it was pushing back on me saying, well, um, famous ma- insert fa- famous magazine isn't charging us that much. Well, yeah, Famous Magazine, that famous, I'm sorry, newspaper is over 100 years old. It's backed by investors. Of course, they have a deeply subsidized rate. So, so, I mean, at first, in one way, I was kind of impressed that he was comparing me to them, but also just, but it was a little insulting to kind of challenge me to have my price structure similar to them. Another question I got from a librarian was, well, what makes your platform, though, any different from that fashion database that I pulled their operating model? And I thought, well, it's completely different and it's completely crucial. Um, and so, so you know, they're kind of grappling with my pricing. But one last example I want to give you with pricing um, that was also insulting that happened to me last fall during a sales call. This is hilarious. Um, I have this acquisitions manager or librarian. They are telling me how important my database is and they need to and this is a famous fashion school they need to acquire it for their library but as they're looking at the list they tell me based on the tiered pricing the price they want to pay that they think they they basically were saying I'm a new kid on the block and so while they understand my resource is critical for their school um they um, we're just kind of talking about their limited resources, even though they're a pretty big school. Mm-hmm. And they were just saying, you know, how about we pay you price tier number two, even though technically they're price tier number three, higher, oh, over $1,000 more. So, but this is where it's hilarious. So they're lowballing me or trying to get me to agree to a lower price. But then they also said they were on a trial because um, we also offer a 30-day trial. They also pressured me to quickly, they, they said they wanted to subscribe, but they said, if you could please, though, keep our access open from the trial to 
full access, full paid access, because our professors are using this for a midterm right now, and we really need your platform. So so you're admitting just how critical, how you actually can't do without it, but you're also not sure that I'm worth what I think I am. So you're going to call my price. I'm sorry. How mm-hmm. dare this person? Like, this is not... And this was a one-on-one call, I imagine. Yeah, it was right. a very awkward Zoom call. That yeah. is terrible. Because unfortunately, that's that individual's bias yeah. and just like cruel rudeness coming through yeah. in a conversation. Something that's a challenge for so many creative entrepreneurs is the idea of valuing their time. Yeah. Services, products, And within the knowledge economy, this is particularly amorphous and can create moments like this where people can just say, I know it's just you and maybe a few other people working on this. I'm going to totally disregard the fact that your work represents millennia of lived experience and history. And I'm going to go, you know, lowball you on this and and be difficult. Why do you think this is and how can you advise others on this? And, you know, perhaps from a perspective of your your customer bases in terms of these institutions. Because the reality is you're having conversations like this because we have a systemic problem around creativity and around valuing knowledge. Yeah. And the fact that today anyone could say that to a woman of color is truly unacceptable. It's it's been, um, it has taken a toll on my mental health, I'll admit, especially since um, I started really doing this work with brands in 2019. And especially in 2020, it was particularly, I'll just use the word violent, because I was just getting all of these unsolicited emails from people asking for my consulting and and my work. But one luxury brand, a famous luxury, a menswear brand, wanted me to help with their diversity and inclusion initiatives. But they said, oh, we're not going to pay you. (laughs) You know, so I have been kind of messed around for the last three years, which has taken a toll on my mental health because they see the importance of it. I see them sometimes twisting in the wind in the news, you know, Mm. as a result of not bringing on my work. But they also don't understand the value of my work. When I try to call a price that is putting me on par with consultancies that they're more familiar with, it's sort of this... um, I don't know. They just can't take it seriously because I'm working in fashion and I'm an educator, um, much like teachers across the country are some of, you know, the most underpaid individuals. Um, Part of it is because it's feminized and then mix into that. I'm the fashion educator on top of that. Exactly. So so when I've worked with executives and I've been in other countries with luxury brand executives where I'm the only not only the the only woman of color at the dinner table, um, whining and dining with these people, but I'm the only woman. And, you know, it's, oh, it's so cute what she's doing. And, you know, it's just, you know, do that little talk about diversity. And then, you know, here's what we think, you know, it's worth and 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 be on your way. Um, but it has been a struggle, I'll admit, trying to um, build this model. Even, you know, when I made my website, again, Artist Solomon, I... I studied other consultancy websites and, you know, how they're doing things. And I did my very best to kind of lay out even case studies and really just spell it out with all of the different things my services can do. And it's still surprising um, that people don't want to create a a line item for various reasons in fashion businesses in this climate for an educator or for preventative research or anything like that. 
I would like to think that it's simply because an educator or preventative research wasn't an option before mm-hmm. and that it's just new and yeah. that this line item is coming. But I think we both know it's more, much more embedded in the feminine nature yeah. of fashion and the yeah. fact that it's so easy to sort of dismiss all of us as a space, especially the, the academic leaning part of it. Well, um, and I also want to add what that also includes, and I think that th- this has a part of it, is when you bring in an educator, it also forces you to look in the mirror. It, it forces you as executives to look at certain things in your business structure that would need to change. And no one likes to feel that they've been complicit in something that someone points out. Um, no one wants to go through all the work of restructuring their business and and thinking about the internal bias, biases, and things like that. Um, so it's just far easier for an ins- to put out the fire than buy insurance. Mm-hmm. So they don't. They'd rather just be dragged through the mud because they know that we are all so overwhelmed with information that, yes, you will see it splashed across Instagram or somewhere, and then we're going to forget about it. So they just threw money at solving the issue temporarily, throwing a Band-Aid on it, and then we're going to forget about it. And so you don't want—why have someone change our minds, change our culture, challenge our internal culture as a business? Um, And so that's what I'm in the business of doing, but it's— It's tough work to sell. I understand. The C-Suite with Catherine is brought to you by Cashflow for Creatives, a financial literacy company dedicated to supporting the small business community through easy-to-understand finance templates, tools, and trainings designed to help you manage cash flow with ease so you can focus on growth and getting back to doing more of what you love. Our core offering is the consistent cash flow method for small business owners, a groundbreaking approach to understanding your small business finances. This method centers around three key parts. First, understanding the key numbers that matter in your business. Second, the expenses you need to plan for based on your strategy. And third, how to craft sales goals based in facts that you believe in, and most importantly, that you understand how to achieve. When we paint this picture together, we get a very clear sense of how much money your business may need and when to be successful. This program is perfect if you're thinking about funding for your business or if you're debating about what comes next and you want to understand how to envision the future with clarity. Plus, you'll gain access to our group mentorship and direct feedback from me. Cashflow for Creatives also offers our Simple Finance 101 small business courses. Short, snappy, powerful lessons that help transform the way you think about money in your small business. And these quick but effective mini courses have an immediate beneficial impact on your business day to day. Head to cashflow-method.com to find the next best step for you and your business. It's also linked below in the show notes. Part of going into a space of empowerment and clarity around your business is, in fact, integrating financial tools that help you see things in a much more straightforward, kind of two sides of the coin, black and white, hard facts kind of way. Um, How did it feel when you started to use the tools within Mm -hmm. the consistent cash flow method? Which one has been the most helpful and how do you view your business differently now? Yeah. I I first want to say... 
the tools that I had on hand were not enough, like uh, accounting tools that you're using. And I had searched far and wide for something that I know this is going to sound totally like a commercial, but it's true. <laughs> you know, I I had joined a couple of women's business cohorts, but a lot of it was cheerleading and helping like you can do this and, you know, just talking about ideas. But I was like, I need someone to talk numbers, though, my day to day, but my numbers, my goals, how can I plan and see around the corner? And so when I found your site and um, I think I had seen you kind of advertising it, but I just never really put two and two together of like, oh, I need this. Oh, that's for me. Yeah, Yeah. it's for me. And so when I started going through the courses, that really helped. But um, the sheets, um, gosh, I'm losing it. I can it's like the top you. sheet. It's the like flash report. The flash report. <laughs> I love the flash report because if I get a little lazy or scatterbrained throughout the week, if there's one thing I can at least do, it's the flash report at least so that I have a snapshot of where my numbers are. Like what are my bank bank account balances, who owes me, which I love, (laughs) and then who do I owe, which I don't love. Equally important, however. Equally important. (laughs) Having that and seeing where my sales are. How did I do compared to last month and last year? And then my other favorite, which we kind of came up with together, and of course, I think you were already planning it, but I was kind of telling you— The 90-day cash flow dashboard. I was like, Catherine, no, I need more. I need to really—no, I really need to see around the corner of my finances— and um, I need to know the ex- almost like a budget sheet. I need to know the expenses going out and what's the snapshot going to look like each week? Like where, like how far down the road when we look, am I going to be in the red? And I need to see that. And I still felt up until then, like I was just like feeling in the dark and just hoping for the best. You used the phrase whack-a-mole. Yeah. Which was- I think I was like, wow, that's it, yeah. right? Like the idea of... You're operating in your business. You're focusing on the content of what you do every day. And then there's sort of these like auto pay things that are just flying. Flying. Subscription this, you know, plug in that, whatever it is. And just feeling like you're at the mercy of the the timeline around you. Yeah. Money is flying out. I'm on auto pay for many of my expenses. And I just felt so helpless. And I needed these tools so I can't stop them. But, um, and then here come, you know, more invoices, you know, paying my lawyer and things like that. And I was just like, help. You know, every time someone comes in and says, we want a subscription, an institution says, we're in. Great news. But I need to know how can I spread across that money? You don't want to just blow it on, you know, throwing, you know, just uh, spending it on anything. I want strategy. Exactly. And so that 90 day really helped, is helping me with strategy. I'm so glad. And the reality is, to my point earlier, it's not that complicated. It's just that these tools have not been made available. So this, the idea of a a 90-day cash flow dashboard, it's the same structure that the largest, most sophisticated companies use to plan their cash flow. Mm -hmm. Because it's not business, just the numbers change, but the structure doesn't get all that different. You have expenses, you have sales, you have accounts payable, which is yeah. what you owe to others mm-hmm. over time, and accounts receivable, which yeah. is what people owe to you. Mm-hmm. And knitting them together over time, that's the challenge. That's what people yeah. are not taught to do, and certainly not in our industry. And so we find ourselves as small business owners like with QuickBooks, yeah. which is great and necessary, yeah. and it helps you organize the financials behind the strategy you're talking about now, but it's not going to tell you anything really about the future. It's going to help you 
reconcile the past yeah. and file your taxes on time, yeah. which is great. But there's a huge void in terms of the day-to-day tools that can mm-hmm. actually help people run their businesses. And I, I learned all of this in the real world and realized, oh my gosh, there's so many talented people mm. who could achieve so much more if only these straightforward resources were inserted into their businesses yeah. so that you can go from stressed out at 3 a.m. thinking about, okay, great, I'm so excited. I just got another Ivy League institution mm-hmm. on the phone yeah. or a committed customer. But right, am I just going to take the funds from that and arbitrarily give it to one of my bills? Yeah. Now you got to look more holistically. And in, in the way you lay it out, I was struggling with, especially as a visual person and a creative person, I use QuickBooks. My bookkeeper and I use QuickBooks, but it just, and and they do, they are trying to be like you with some of the things they're doing, but I just can't. Like it's, your spreadsheets just really kind of lay it out, especially even the little touches of taking the grid lines off. Oh my God. <laughs> you well, know, just adding your logo and just add, taking the grid lines off. And you know, that's the just, thing. Like I, I, when I went to Columbia Business School, I barely knew how to use Excel. Mm. And so, but not because I wasn't capable. I had just never seen examples. And so they put us in these learning teams and mm. one of my friends said, let me just show you how to make this look like this. You know, he had a beautiful example from the top tier of investment banking. Mm. And I took one look at that and was like, oh, that's what I need mine to look like, except I'm going to add a logo and help calm down. Because I'm sure you've seen within fashion, I tend to see early stage spreadsheets from people and they they have no formulas and they are very, very colorful. Mm. And I was like, I think we can do better than that, (laughs) but it should be visually appealing. Right. And so just creating resources that when you land on them, you're like, oh, this looks like it's for me as yeah. opposed to this looks like it's for my great uncle Steve, the accountant. Yes. Because that's just not inviting enough and empowering no. at first glance. No. And so I I love it. And it, it, I feel so official with that. One thing I have to work <laughs> on is I think it's your operating model one. I was so overwhelmed. And at first, when I first reached out to you, the subscriptions weren't fully rolling in. So then I thought, well, I don't really have the numbers for this, but then it just snowballed. And so now I think this year, um, I'm going to be ready to fully map out the operating model. That's great. And it is more of a later stage tool. So within the the course membership, you have these different tools and you can use them when they make the most sense for you. And a three-year financial operating model, it really only makes sense when you've got some data to work with. Yeah. You can use all speculative assumptions mm-hmm. like I plan on launching my product for, you know, 49.99. I mm-hmm. plan on my product's going to cost me $7 mm-hmm. and so I I anticipate what my profit margin's going to be yeah. and I think I'll be able to sell it to 100 people a month. You can use it like that. Yeah. But for someone like you who is such an analytical thinker, as well as being a creative genius, if I may say so myself, you're like, I am only going to use this tool when I know I've got some data to base it on. So, you know, whether you're at the beginning or you are more, you know, you've got a few years of data behind you, there are tools that make sense for every step. Can I also add, I appreciate the guardrails. I also, I, I love to ideate things. I come up with so many ideas. And one thing you had told me when it came to the channels of income I was like, I have this business and I want to do this and we can also offer this. But um, kind of having two to three channels, at least in 
on my sheet that you have, you know, it really helped kind of create guardrails for um, what I can do and focus on because you really wanted me to just focus on like just one really strong product, one really strong service instead of three other things, um, categories that I'm throwing in. So that was very helpful. There's a space for everything you want to sell. But the reality is most businesses sell a lot of a few things and very few of all the rest of it. Yeah. And so being, I see this with a lot, lot, I see this very often with fashion designers Mm -hmm. who will kind of miss the fact that they're selling 90% of their sales Mm -hmm. are like, the same three styles, yeah, but they're absolutely madly in love with the thing that four people have bought. And so they're spending all this money developing the smaller group yeah. that will never grow to the extent yeah. the others will. And that's okay. That's why we have a little bit of newness every season in fashion, keep people excited. But the business is going to be clustered around the core things. And so that's also where you need to look to find the true numbers that are telling the picture of your potential future. That hero. The hero. And isolate around that so that you can really plan with clarity. So like you can, you can kind of estimate now the number of subscriptions you can sell in a year. Yes. And then you know, okay, if I'm selling this number at this average dollar amount factoring in, because you learn how to factor in like discounts or you might occasionally do a certain wholesale type structure of something, you can understand your profit over a time horizon and then look at that relative to your expenses that you know you need to have in order to make those sales happen. That was so helpful. And and because of you, we're able to, I've kind of implemented that also in QuickBooks with my bookkeeper, where now we have, again, thanks to you and, and that kind of realization, um, setting those prices with those tiers in QuickBooks. So now she can also track it and we can do reports that shows, oh, it seems that most of the universities on average each year are paying at this, you know, tier. So that's really helpful also. That's the best way to use a tool like QuickBooks. It's to be able to first get the financial literacy around being able to talk about what you're doing and then use QuickBooks or your whatever your accounting software is I aspire to have QuickBooks as like a sponsor of this podcast, by the way, (laughs) Uh, using your accounting software to proactively answer the questions that you have on a rolling basis. So when you meet with your bookkeeper or your accountant, Mm -hmm. monthly, quarterly, however you do it, you're able to say, well, how are we trending in terms of institutional subscribers? You know, you want to make sure that the natural questions you have about your business are being answered in your bookkeeper prepared financials. Yeah. And so learning well, what can I even know from these numbers is kind of first step. Yeah. Uh, so your work spans some of the most critical focus area for our industry today. Mm-hmm. Race, sustainability, ethics, social justice. When you're home by yourself, tell me about that version of Kim. Oh, gosh. So I, um, aside from renting an office space so I can kind of be social because being an entrepreneur is so solitary and... Like, I, you know, I like to go out to an op- my office over in Soho and just be around people. But the majority of the time, I'm at home, and I have a home office. Um, I'm, I'm privileged enough to have a home office. and You do not I, need to apologize for that. You have worked very hard for a home <laughs> office. Don't be apologizing. No, um, no, no. Oh, gosh. Um, but, yeah, I have this home office, and when I'm there, on the whole, my apartment, I've made it out to be a sanctuary. And my office is 
also an extension of that sanctuary. Given the kind of work that I do, the nature of the work I do, which is very, of course, mental, but um, very emotional and can be physical, um, I need my home to be as peaceful as possible. Um, Rituals and routines every day are so critical from when I rise early in the morning and working out to kind of clear my head and and then the coffee ritual and um, doing focused work. I do kind of time blocks of focused work and then there's time blocks of dealing with emails and kind of the chaos of that. That's great advice um, in general, the time blocking strategy. The by time the way. blocking is just I can't do without it. But also having that shut off of, okay, this is end of day. Every day, this is end of day. And just deciding. um, I also categorize and theme my days of as best as I can. Um, You know, like this day is admin day. This day is creative work day where that's the day I get to just really go out and just focus on creative projects. Wednesday is like social media and marketing day and networking day. Thursday is sales and business day where I'm looking at the flash report and doing all of that. Friday is kind of catch-all day where I'm doing, you know, all the leftover and then leaving out early to take care of myself and rest for the weekend. Um, so, the, so the day-to-day and what home life looks like is um, just making it a sanctuary space to kind of nurture myself and care for myself when I'm dealing with these things, which can be sometimes stressful. Sometimes, sure. you know, it. Um, the work I do is so connected um, you know, it's not just a book that I can just throw back on the shelf. It actually has to do with my lived experience and my life and my, yeah, just um, just my lived experience. And so it can get very personal and emotional, especially if you're engaging in a disappointing Zoom call or an email where someone just isn't seeing you and challenging the value or a price on something or something falls through um, when it relates to kind of again, your lived experience and, and larger systemic issues that you're bound up in that maybe they're not. So so there's that. A bit easier yeah. for them to maybe have that call than it was for you. Yeah, yeah. I, I think your your guidance on structuring your days like that and theming them is a really great takeaway yeah. for listeners. I mean, we know now that multitasking is really bad for us. Yeah. It's very inefficient. And for small business owners, there are always so many demands on your time. Yeah. And it is a deeply emotionally, mentally, spiritually exhausting thing to be a small business owner. Absolutely. Then when, when you add the layers of your particular place in the world, yeah. and the you represent so many people yeah. in this work. So I imagine it's completely exhausting on those days. Added to that over the years, it's it's been people looking up to me mm-hmm. and loving the work, but kind of looking to you to be their their um, their vocal piece on these things of like, well, you know, people are listening to you. So, you know, we're counting on you to stand up for this cause or this cause yeah. or get it right on this cause. And that's a lot of pressure. So, um, or I want to work for you. I want to be an intern. And so just feeling, and I can be sometimes a yes person, mm-hmm. feeling the need to bring all of these people in and create create opportunities for them as well. Um, I knew that I, was I'm on, not complaining, but it's. Yeah, yeah, I definitely knew that that was on your plate. Mm-hmm. And when I saw your name come through, yeah. I was literally like, <laughs> get on the phone with yeah. me. Because Thank if there's you. anything I can do to yeah. give you a spreadsheet, give you yeah. a tool that helps you gain clarity around what you're doing. Uh, I'm just behind you infinity percent. Thank uh, you. I, I want to touch on one thing because you just said you, you feel and you very much are the voice for a lot of people. There was another podcast project that you worked on called The Invisible Seam. Yes. It was 
titled Unsung Stories of Black Culture and Fashion. Yes. The five-part series explored moments in, in history when Black Americans demanded respect, challenged norms, built community, and imagined the future all through what they wore. Yeah. Tell me about that project. That was so exciting. That that was a major win. And it was um, in the making starting in 20, technically late 2020, but I'd say 2021. Um, that was an opportunity that um, where I had a major fashion brand take a chance on me, a major global fashion brand say, we see you educator, fashion nerd, you know, we see what you're trying to do. What does support look like? What does a creative project look like? And so um, music to my ears. And so in working with one of the executives there, uh, Randy Cousin, it was an opportunity for me to experiment making an act, turning an academic project of fashion research, but making it cool and accessible to audiences and getting a fashion brand to back it. So what that culminated into was Tommy Hilfiger being open to commissioning research where I was getting historians to write about the underrepresented or um, um underexamined histories of Black culture to fashion across time, like from the 1800s to today, me being the expert where I can bring in these academic scholars, which going back to the beginning of our conversation, you know, academics aren't used to having a handsome sum of money handed to them for doing research. So I was creating, simultaneously creating a business, a new business model, but having this brand support them. So now when you go to the Fashion Race database, you'll see their articles and it'll say, this content was brought to you by Tommy Hilfiger. So that created a model for brands being able to take part in this work without um, being the expert. Because many fashion brands are thinking, well, we don't know. We're not academics. We don't know how to do this. Mm-hmm. But then that also tied into a podcast project. And so we got Pineapple Street Studio, which is this great podcast production company, to um, produce a podcast for us. And so we put our heads together. They tossed me the keys to be the host and co-producer. And I was able to satisfy my desire to bring fashion history lessons almost from the classroom, but then merging with the way a fashion brand, I I was learning too, a fashion brand knows how to spin it. And so that marriage of Tommy Hilfiger knowing how to present something to audiences and me knowing how to educate audiences, we were able to put together this gorgeous podcast with several uh, episodes and where I got to write a mini syllabus for each one. And so um, it it was just really just a great experience and and an opportunity for me to also go back and show my peers what's possible. You know, there doesn't have to be these two silos of education, design and the industry and the business of fashion. Though I will say one critique, though, is, and I have been criticized, um, you know, there are academics or activists who believe that there should be those silos. They don't believe there should be a bridge. They're they're very skeptical about the industry, and there's numerous reasons as to why Mm -hmm. they should be, and I am as well. But um, I I guess I I just own my own strategy, which is of, like— these brands still exist and people around the world are still buying from them. I'm not excusing um, all of these global fashion brands with everything they do. Um, but the the fact of the matter is if these brands want to help support financially my education work, 
I'm bringing them in and we're reaching hundreds of thousands of people around the world with these lessons. So it's something I'm, you know, negotiating week to week, month to month, even with my business model of who do I want to align with? You know, do we have the same value system? Um, so that's still a work in progress of how to do this and and how to help my finances um, and, and sustain um, Artist Solomon and the Fashion Race database. But those are some of the challenges to be continued. With, you, you beat with me to my that. next question, which yeah. was, what are your biggest challenges right now? But I think, you know, you're you're speaking to something also that's so important, which is evaluating partnerships based on values. And that is not going, all money is good money. No, it is not. And that so. is something that is a muscle to exercise and yeah. learning how to evaluate the values that are inherent in other organizations, vendors, people, partnerships, institutions. That's a real part of lead yeah. it, leading your business and being a leader. But the other thing, the other side of the coin of the criticism maybe that you're hearing is, I, from my perspective, because I think a lot about, you know, um, brand authority and adjacency and things like that, yeah. you partnering with a major fashion brand just tells people who might come across that partnership that they need to pay attention to you. Yeah. And that, you know, Kim has partnered with this brand. Well, yeah. I know and shop from and have observed this brand on billboards, <laughs> on red carpets. Yeah. Kim is a, a equivalent. Like this yeah. this work, the Fashion and Race Database being attached or or Art Solomon yeah. being attached to major labels from my perspective is the best marketing investment you could have. Yeah. And all the more reason to keep doing it. Absolutely. I mean, I, I've been um, lucky to have many of those Gucci, the Met Museum, the Museum of Fine Arts Boston, Instagram partnered with me to, to teach fashion lessons um, as part of a project. To have all of them entrust me with education has been exciting. And so you will, you know, be open to critique of, you know, you shouldn't, you know, build a bridge to these people, but I'm figuring it out. You know, I'm trying to figure out um, what collaborative support looks like um, so that I can at least reach my goals of um, educating as many people as possible, creating as many new jobs as possible for us to make the change that we want to see, because we can't just do this alone. So, um, so yeah, so I'm working that out. Well, I firmly believe that if you're upsetting no one, you're probably not <laughs> yeah. doing something yeah. right, you yeah. know? So kudos to you for shaking things Thanks. up. I only have one more question for you. Okay. It is, what advice do you have for listeners who might be interested in entrepreneurship? I would say just within reason, of course, just do it. Um, just start somewhere. Um, I'm someone who can sometimes be caught up in analysis paralysis where everything has to be perfect. I just need to have the perfect conditions. You know, I just have to have this one opportunity starting somewhere, um, just to get the ball rolling. Um, that, I guess that's my greatest advice. Um, I was dragging my feet about the subscription model for the database and I'm realizing had I not done that, if I just kept waiting and just worrying, um, oh, but it has to look like this and it has to look like this website, um, I would have m missed out on a great deal of amazing new partnerships with universities and museums around the world. And of course, revenue. But, you know, now we're transforming, you know, we're present in universities and museums around the world because we just started somewhere. 
And we're just going to keep refining our product and just making it better and better for schools, listening to needs. Of course, you have to listen to your customers. And I think that other piece of advice is not just to um, throw something out there, just create a business. You need to think about what are you, what's your why? Like, what are you bringing that no one else can really bring out there? Um, And... um, but again, it's a two-way street, just seeing who are you serving? What do they need to hear? What what do they need to get from you? What is so urgent? Um, so yeah, I would say that. But above all, just start somewhere. Just get your feet wet. And the worst that can happen is you realize, okay, it didn't work out the way I thought, or maybe, you know, my idea isn't as unique as I thought it was or anything like that. But at least you did it. You do not want to go through life um, just with the what-ifs. The what-ifs are something to avoid at all costs. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. Take that step. It will be worth it. <laughs> yep. Kim, thank you so much from the bottom of my heart. This thank was an you. extreme this honor. So fun. I'm so grateful. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks. <laughs> thank you so much for joining me on this episode of The C-Suite with Catherine, your friendly source for small business finance and career guidance through stories. I've linked all the resources that we talked about in this episode in the show notes below. And I can't wait for our next episode together. Thank you so much for being here. Take care.